Who's some of the worst offenders that you've seen for uh, colleges, at least? Yeah. Well, Liberty University is up there. Sorry, guys. Number one. (laughs) (laughs) Go Flames. Training champions for Christ. Number one in all things. So. I was. Uh... Hey, has anybody told you how great our law school is? By the way. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, your law school. Welcome to Growing Up Christian. I'm Casey, and I'm the only one here today. (laughs) Sam and I had the toughest time uh, this weekend getting this intro together, just technical difficulties and all sorts of things, and just came down to the wire. So I just wanted to take a quick minute to introduce our guest today. This is a a great episode, and uh, this is a especially timely one considering it's Pride Month and these guys are right in the middle of their big project. Our our guest today is Paul Southwick. And Paul is the director of REAP, which is the Resi- Religious Exemption Accountability Project. Um, if you've, You may have heard of them lately because they're in the middle of a class action lawsuit against the Department of Education to try to put some pressure on colleges, especially religious colleges, that discriminate against gay, queer, trans, and non-binary students. Um, you know, we've talked at length on here about our experience at Liberty University, you know, and guests like like Luke Wilson, uh, Matt Robbie, who, you know, had to go through gay conversion therapy at Liberty. There was a lot of pressure on them. There's just, there's just years and years of bad practices here. And you know, we're talking about colleges where being gay is, is a punishable offense. And so the goal of REAP is to pressure the Department of Education to stop using government funds to support colleges that discriminate against our LGBTQ plus friends. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff that goes into this because you might be thinking like, well, why the Department of Education? Why don't they just target the schools themselves. There's really good reasons for all of that. And Paul was just, uh, he's a wealth of knowledge on the subject. Um, He's kind of one of the ones leading the charge on this whole deal. And uh, not only has he got, you know, a ton of info that he shared with us about the basics of what this lawsuit is trying to do and some of the other projects that they're doing, Reap's doing, you know, a documentary to back this up. They're doing a whole bunch of different public events and things like that. I mean, it's a multi-pronged approach to trying to protect these LGBTQ plus students. Um, not only that, but he was, he's just a hilarious guy. I mean, uh, just a really witty, fun person to talk to. And so I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. This is a, this project, it's, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. I mean, we're coming out of COVID. Uh, the courts are backed up. There's counter litigation and stuff that's been levied against REAP, you know, to, as, to try to combat what they're doing with the Department of Education. There's a lot of pieces in play here. And this is something that that is going to require a commitment from all of us that think this is important. OK, so if this is something that speaks to you, which I, I think probably is a lot of you guys out there, if this is important to you and if you want to see this happen, 
I'm going to ask you to go to thereap.org, and that's going to give you the whole rundown on the project and stuff. But, you know, towards the middle of the page on the right, there's a, a pledge button and a donate button. I would encourage you, if this is something that speaks to you, if if uh, protecting gay, queer, non-binary, and trans friends at religious colleges is is something that you want to do, I would highly encourage you to, to financially support this project because they're going to need it. I mean, they're in for a, a long, bitter fight with, uh, with some of these institutions. So take a look at thereap.org. Uh, enjoy our conversation with Paul Southwick. And Sam and I just wanted to say that, um, you know, we've over the past six months that we've been doing this, this podcast, you know, we've gotten to talk to a lot of people from the LGBTQ community. And uh, it's been just a really like, I don't know if educational is the right word. It's, it's just been, I, we've learned so much and not just about religion and how it's entangled in these issues and stuff like that. Some of the hardships that they went through, but, you know, just about the value of people. If you're a member of the, the LGBTQ plus community and you listen to this podcast, Sam and I just want you to know that we, we really appreciate you guys. And, uh, you know, we want you to know that you guys make a difference every day on these issues just by being great people to the people around you. So without further ado, enjoy our conversation with Paul Southwick. Hey, everybody. We're back with our guest, Paul Southwick. Uh, Paul's the director of the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. Uh, generally seems to be abbreviated REAP, and that's what we'll go with for the uh, the conversation here. But uh, first of all, Paul, thanks for joining us. We, we appreciate you doing this and taking the time here. Really happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Paul, can you tell us a little bit about reap and what your what your role is uh with it before we kind of get into the the meteor aspects of what's going on right now sure reap's mission is to uh advocate for lgbtq plus students at religiously affiliated colleges universities and schools where those spaces are hostile towards them and not every religious space is like that but unfortunately there are quite a few and so our work is uh, primarily in the areas of litigation, uh, documentary film, and research and policy work. Okay. What's, um, I don't know if there's anything specific. I feel like there's like, I don't know if you have anything specific um, up until this point, um, like documentary wise, I think is what I'm interested in uh, a little bit too is, um, is because I'd love to be able to point people in the direction of some of the work that you guys have had going on after this. So um, what kind of documentary work have you guys done? Sure. Yeah, we have a team in Los Angeles, mostly based in Los Angeles, a few folks here in Portland. And they started filming, I think it was in November of last year. It's been a little tricky with COVID uh, and trying to film uh, and travel places. But really, <laughs> the purpose of the film is to kind of uplift the personal narratives of a few of the students who are queer or trans, non-binary, and are on campuses like Baylor University, BYU, Liberty, and those kinds of places, Bob Jones University. And so it's going to follow them, you know, 
their journey as students, but also get into their backstory, how they grew up, how they ended up at those schools, what it's like to be in that kind of a faith community as a person who's an outsider um, in some ways. And so it's following um, their lives and experience, and then also the litigation that we filed in March of this year, which would be a long-term case. It's going to follow some of that too. Okay. Oh, that sounds great. Kind of like personalizing some of these problems that tend to turn into like a big back and forth media blowout. Yeah, because a lot of times, you know, you'll have the right and the left and it's this big clash and um, people take sides and they, you know, go to their uh, most comfortable place and they kind of dig in. And what we're hoping is the people who kind of get caught in the middle of all that, which these, you know, queer Christian kids do, um, that by sharing their story and personalizing it, it can kind of break down some of those walls that get put up real fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, personalizing it certainly makes a big difference. We've had a few conversations of late with uh, people who, who had, you know, come out at a later age that had had difficult, it's like that no one in their life would have been supportive, um, you know, which is why they took so long to come out. They were afraid that they wouldn't have that support. And of course, some didn't get it from everybody, but uh, you know, what you often see is such a, is that the people who are really close, like that's the, they're the ones who are, are more quickly to to change their mind and, and redirect kind of like their belief system around that once it becomes a, a personal issue for them too. Right. Yep. Or for their family members. So, you know, often the parents will change their mind once their kid comes out, but you know, that kid might be really scared to do that for, for quite some time. Right. Yeah. Now you went to, you, you went to a Christian university, I right? I did. Yeah. So you have a you have a personal stake in this as well. You there's uh, some direct experience here. Yeah, that that's for sure. And I forget where where did where are you guys from? What state? So LU is where we went so, to college. Yeah. So yeah, I'm over in Massachusetts. I'm in and, Kansas. Ah, okay. But yeah, we yeah we met at Liberty University. Uh, so that's where um, so we're familiar with some of uh, some of. Some of what you do, not personally, I mean, we're both just your average straight white man. But what we didn't realize is how many of our friends were gay uh, at Liberty. Right. That we were the type of people you'd have to skewer in your documentary. <laughs> 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 we were awful. So I think that's a, like, that's what, uh, that's like the, the, I think one of the more powerful things about like documentaries is just, it was really easy to have awful views about uh you know the gay community and and you know fill in the blank uh up to the point where like my my latter years at liberty because i didn't know any gay people yeah i had real strong opinions on them right but i didn't actually know any. <laughs> and i remember like the the first guy that i actually talked to a little bit that that was gay was that i don't remember his name Sam, but he used to come to shows all the time. And I remember like after talking to him a little bit, like it was just really hard to, to maintain that, you know, uh, stark dividing line, you know, this is how it is. And that's all there is to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys know somewhat, you know, what the kind of culture is like at a place like Liberty It's similar uh, to where I went to college out in Oregon, George Fox university. And, 
you know, on a campus like that, it's not really that safe to come out. Um, you can come out to some students and maybe, you know, students are a lot more affirming and supportive now than they were in the early 2000s when I was in college. And a lot of the faculty are also pretty on board. But when you know that if you come out to someone, they could tell your RA and then your RA could tell the dean of you know, the honor code office or what have you, then that's kind of, you know, a scary place. Or for what happened to me, I was just so miserable and torn as a closeted queer person. Um, I ended up having a panic attack about it. And I didn't know what that was or what was happening to my body. And afterwards, I had to meet with our campus pastor and I told him why was all about this sexuality and feeling like I was this horrible, gross person. And unfortunately, instead of um, showing me love in a healthy way, he sent me to conversion therapy to get help. And, uh, you know, he he thought he was doing it out of love. But that's that's kind of the messed up thing about growing up in these fundamentalist communities is that way of showing love is just so damaging, so harmful. Yeah, I, man, I, that one's been sticking with me a lot lately, the amount of things that, you know, I, outside of that even, um, on a less, um, uh, maybe less personal level is like, I, I just remember thinking and hearing frequently like, oh, you know, you just, you got to speak the truth in love, but you do have to speak the truth. And, and it became clear as time went on that it was uh, their understanding was mostly just that it's loving to tell the truth uh, and their understanding of what the truth was. But when you're doing, when you're, it seems particularly so when speaking to people who are queer that come out and it's like, that's such a, a deep part of who they are as opposed to like, you know, I've been partying on the weekends and I'm in high school <laughs> and my like, Oh, that wasn't me. I was the kid that was telling people to knock that shit off. But, right. um, but like when when the response to that is like, we love you and we care about you. And that's why we have to do this. It almost like does a double down on the trauma. I would. Yeah, I think it's even more abusive when it's done like that, because then on the receiving end of that, you think, oh, well, I really should listen to them because, you know, they have my best interest in mind. And so that earns your trust and your loyalty. And then you think that when it's not working out and you're not becoming straight, then you think, Oh, it must be me. It's my fault. And it just adds, it adds more to the shame in the long run. Um, so hopefully, you know, folks are even within these conservative religious circles are starting to change their view on things like conversion therapy and just realizing that, yeah, that was a really bad idea. So things have pushed a long way since like we were in college, like you were saying, uh, even so like who's some of the worst offenders that you've seen for, for, uh, colleges at least. Yeah. Well, Liberty university is up there. Sorry guys. Number one, (laughs) (laughs) go flames training champions for Christ. Number one in all things. So, I was uh have has anybody told you how great our law school is, by the way? Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, your law school. Man, it's a dangerous place. Um I actually spent some time on the Liberty campus earlier this year because I did uh as part of the REAP project, 
I drove my Tesla all the way across country for two months, going to little campuses and, and not so little campuses like Liberty and meeting with closeted queer students. So I've seen your campus and it is fancy. It is way fancier than most of these little Christian colleges out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, but putting those federal grants to work. Yeah. <laughs> lots of federal money coming in. Um, but I met with, I met with one gay kid who was out and he kind of fits your profile. Like he kind of looks like you, you know, he's pretty, he's pretty masculine and you know, you wouldn't notice that he was gay just by meeting him. And his view is kind of like, Oh, it's fine. You know, my friends know it's okay. But then if you look, talk to someone who's gender non-conforming or who doesn't look like one of the guys, they're still super scared to tell anybody or to come out at all. And so there's a real culture of fear. Um, if you don't fit in at least with some kind of the, you know, white middle-class straight mold, if you don't look like that, it still is a really scary place. And I've also heard that there's this, pastor there who has this program of conversion therapy he just retired um but dozens if not elmer what's that elmer yeah no what's what's the guy's name uh uh luke talked about him yes i forget his name now but a lot of people went through that guy's program so pretty bad um but lu is not alone there uh bob jones university is really really hard place um cedarville university in ohio you know if you just come out at some of those places you'll be given 24 hours or less to pack your bags and you're out no way yes they don't have wow cedarville i haven't heard that name in a while yeah it is that was like uh rough that that was like the the spot where a lot of your buddies in youth group that had bad grades went (laughs) <laughs> i'm sure it's a great place just saying that i i noticed a trend <laughs> oh man yeah so there That's are there, you know I there didn't... are some schools like that that still exist you know liberty probably wouldn't do something that drastic just for coming out but if you start holding hands with a same-sex partner on campus then they probably will yeah yeah i think that sounds about right from when i was when I was there. Now, a lot of these colleges seem to set up these programs uh, as a place to go after you come out, but I don't, I, I thought it was required at Liberty at one point, and I, I turns out I was wrong on that. It was just strongly encouraged, and you were pretty, I pretty shamed uh, into not doing it, but so it seems like as long as you weren't uh, having any physical intimacy regardless of how light that might have been like you said just holding hands they would have just it would have flown under the radar they would have allowed you to be there but they were definitely keeping a close eye on you and if they thought that there was an issue they'd push it a little bit more to go to their their therapy program their gay conversion therapy so when you looked at all these other colleges is that is it would you find them mostly similar to that or are, are there a lot of them that are like more like Cedarville where it's just like, if you, if you refuse to go to those, like they might have these programs available, but if you refuse, they kick you out or are they always optional uh, or frequently optional? What's, I mean, what, every school your... is different, right? And every, and it depends on who the Dean is or the president at the time, how strict they're going to be about it. But, you know, for the, 
for the 200 or some odd colleges that are out there doing some version of this, um, there's some, you know, really, there's ones on the really bad side, like Bob Jones, Cedarville and Liberty. And then there's other ones that are on like the discrimination light side. And that would be like Baylor University. Because everyone, when you think of Baylor, you never think, or, you know, most people don't think of queer oppression. You know, they, they think of basketball and they think of uh, medical school and like really smart people going there. Um, so they've created this brand and this image. But even at Baylor, they don't let LGBT students have a student group. They prohibit same-sex relationships um, for faculty and students. Um, so, I mean, it's still, it's not as bad in that they wouldn't really send people to conversion therapy and they won't really expel students, probably not even expel them for holding hands, but it's still prohibited. Um, and it's kind of like this hush hush kind of a thing. Yeah. That, that's so strange. Cause even, are there even some college, I don't really know where Baylor stands. I know some people who went there, um, but are there colleges that even have like this, like they appear to be liberal Christian in some ways, but still have this going on? Or is there kind of a divide between a more conservative ideology in this and then just your li like a liberal Christian college? <laughs> I know that's a spectrum, so it's hard to like really balance. I don't know if you have any just thoughts on that. Well, you know, in like the way I grew up, um, pretty much anyone that was not Liberty or Bob Jones was liberal. So, you know, it's like, you know, it depends on Same. how you grow up, what you think of as liberal versus conservative. Um, but I would say at a lot of the schools, you know, more on the liberal side, like Baylor or there, you know, there are a bunch out there like Seattle Pacific University, Eastern University, especially if they're in like big cities where, you know, a lot of people tend to be more cultured or progressive or what have you. I have met gay people. Um, those schools, they look really inviting. You know, even Liberty looks really inviting. If you look at marketing materials, you're like, whoa, everybody goes here. Half the students must be black yeah. or brown. And like, you know, <laughs> it's like if you, if you just go based on that, they say diversity, right? They use the word diversity and inclusion. Um, and they don't specify, you know, that they are very limited in their understanding of what that means. So, yeah, a lot of the kids will tell me that, you know, I knew it was conservative, but, you know, I met people. They seemed really open and welcoming. Their marketing materials were great. And I didn't realize that it was going to be as bad as it was. I mean, so uh, I think like uh, for for a lot of my like more conservative friends, especially those that are still like in the church, um, I think they would hear a lot of this stuff and be like, well, look, uh, you know, it's a it's a private institution. And if uh, if you don't like the rules, then, you know, you can choose not to go there. So, like, why do you have to change the way that things are there when that's obviously what people believe? Right. Number one question we get from everybody. <laughs> um, and surprisingly, that same question comes from the civil rights groups that are fighting for LGBT rights, they ask us the same thing. Um, you know, why should we get involved in your issue? Um, they shouldn't even be there to begin with. And the real response to that is, sorry, everyone, you're always gonna have queer people ending up in your spaces. And you're always gonna have trans people ending up in your spaces. And why is that? Well, because sexual orientation and gender identity 
is not something unique to secular people. Like fundamentalist Christians have gay kids too. They have just as many gay kids as a secular person who's never stepped a foot in church in their entire life. The percentage of gay kids is going to be the same. The percentage of trans kids is going to be the same. And if you grew up in a home like mine, the only college you would ever go to would be a conservative Christian college. There was no other world available to you. There was, and you didn't want to go anywhere else um, unless you were one of the bad kids. But, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're one of the good kids, you're going to the Christian school and you don't like gay people. And then you get there. And if you realize that you are gay yourself, you're in hell. You're in literal hell. There's nowhere to go. No one to turn to nobody who has your back and it's a very very scary place so that's one response but another response is these are not really private schools you hinted at this earlier casey um liberty university takes in a billion dollars with a b from the federal government every year that's one school wow a billion and so we're talking about the federal government is effectively financing all of these Christian colleges. So we're, we're not targeting any Christian college that is what I would say truly private. If you're just funded off of, you know, your church or your denomination or parents paying down the money for the school and the federal government is not involved in financing your school, our case has nothing to do with you. Um, there are a few schools out there like that. Um, but when, when taxpayer money is on the line, that means I'm supporting it. You guys are supporting it. And anyone who pays taxes is supporting it. And that's where it really shouldn't be allowed. Do you call that the Hobby Lobby defense? <laughs> their, their version of it? Um, well. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, I don't want my tax dollars going towards Condoms. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but Viagra's okay, you know. No yeah. <laughs> and so that's what this, um, so, you know, I, I don't think we've gotten into it uh, on a specific level yet. So addressing that and what, what Reap is doing is uh, there, you guys are basically spearheading a class action lawsuit against the Department of Education to eliminate these fundings like this this type of funding to religious institutions or uh, academic institutions that are anti-lgbtq and have programs like these the uh, gay conversion therapy programs or are in some way actively discriminated against them is that right it's almost right so okay our goal is not to take the money away our goal is to align the financial incentive with providing protections and basic civil rights to queer people on these campuses. So what I mean by that is, if we win our lawsuit, the schools are not going to be forced to change their policy. What they're going to be forced to do is decide, do they still want those millions and billions from Uncle Sam? And if they do, then they need to start following the law. But if they would rather keep on discriminating, they can do that. They just can no longer take public money. So if that's that's the position that we want them to be put in, because right now, why should they change? Why should they change? They get all the money from the government. 
the parents of these fundamentalist kids are super happy that they're still being oppressive to queer people. So everyone with money and power is happy right now. So why would they ever change? You have to change the financial incentive. And so that's what we're doing. And that's why we're going after the Department of Education, because they have they have obligations um, under the Constitution to protecting the basic civil rights of of all people, including LGBTQ people. And they have the power of the purse string to influence what the policies are going to end up being like at these schools. Yeah, I've never in my life seen anyone uh, sacrifice their uh, their values for money. So we'll see how that plays out. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you how it's playing out in Canada because um, Canada is like doing, you know, Canada is always great for a lot of things, right? But um, there was a conservative Christian college there that was going to open a law school and they weren't going to let queer people who were married go to that law school. And they had the same kind of sex policies like at Liberty. And they went to get it approved by the government. The government said, we're not approving it because you're not allowing your law school to be open to all people. And it went all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court. And the Canadian Supreme Court sided with um, the government and said, look, we're not going to accredit a school if you don't let all people attend. And all people includes gay people. And so in response, the school immediately changed its policy and it went ahead and opened the law school. And now everybody's <laughs> fine. You know, everyone's fine. They still have their law school, but now everybody gets to go. So I think, you know, if I had to predict, I'd say most of the schools are going to keep the money and change their policies. Uh, some won't. So, okay. Can you break down the number a little bit for me? Because it's, sure. it's like you said, Liberty takes on takes in a billion federal dollars a year. I, I'm sure that takes a lot of different forms. Does that number include just like uh, federal student loans, like Fannie Mae, and am I, I maybe that's not even the one that does it? I can't remember which <laughs> one of those. La- the loan lady, you know. <laughs> the number includes uh, student loans, but only the ones that come from the Department of Education. So not private loans from any banks or financial institutions. But yes, it includes um, student loans. It includes Pell Grants. And it also includes probably the next biggest chunk of that money um, would be direct payments for grants to the school or contracts. So like Liberty has a contract with, um, what, what military, um, what military, uh, unit is over by Liberty? Is it the air force or the Navy? Um, there is a air force base in like, I think it's in, is it in Virginia beach or something like okay. that? Or Navy. Yeah, one of the branches. It's either the Navy or the Air Force, I think. But one of those branches, Liberty has a contract with them, and they get they get paid by the Department of Defense for whatever they're doing. I don't know what the agreement is exactly, but they have that kind of a contract, so they get paid by the government for that. Also, a lot of science researchers. um, I don't know so much at Liberty, but I know at like BYU and um, Baylor and some of the big research schools. Uh, the Department of Human, uh, Health and Human Services and other, the National Science Foundation, they'll, they'll award multi-million dollar grants to do research um, or to run programs. So that's the other way the money comes in. 
Okay. So does that mean, so when you're saying that uh, this also affects, um, you know, student loans, uh, like the government issued student loans, does that mean that maybe I have a, I probably have a misunderstanding of how any of this works because when I went to college, my parents dealt with it and then I just paid them off at that point from now until the rest of my life. But um, <laughs> you, what you, you take out these, does the colleges get money to like kind of divvy out these loans on their behalf or is it going to affect kids uh, applying for these loans from the government if that's the institution they choose to go to? Am I making sense when I ask that question? Yeah. So no, (laughs) (laughs) you you lost Casey. I'll I'll catch up. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Well, I'll try to break it down a little bit. So there are there are two forms of money coming in. One is the direct money, and that is like the federal government just putting money in the bank account of Liberty University for whatever, for buying something from them or investing in some research. Then there's what's called indirect financial assistance, and that would be the student loans. It's considered indirect. Now, indirect financial assistance still means government money and it means that you have to follow all the government's rules if you qualify for it. Um, so even though it's indirect. Now, what I mean by indirect, what I mean is when you get like $20,000 from the U.S. Department of Education to go to Liberty University to pay your tuition, it never goes into your bank account. You know, it, it always goes directly into uh, Liberty's bank account. So you are, it flows through you like in some ephemeral way, but you'll never see a dime of it. It's automatically going. The money that you would see is if you're getting loans to cover books or um, living expenses, then you will be given, you know, the smaller amount for whatever that is. So how this would work. You get that, that refund and, and you should. <laughs> If you were mature at all, you would send that refund back and just say, take this off my final tally. But no one does. And they're like, I want a PlayStation. I want some Jordans. And then they get to pay for those for 30 years. Yeah. Not that any of us ever did any of that. Yeah, this is the voice of experience talking. Um, so to your point, Sam, some people say that if we're successful, we're going to be limiting the options for students. And, you know, their argument is that, look, now, you know, a student who wants to go to Liberty and wants to pay for it with government loans, they won't be able to do that. Um, And so in one respect, it's true. If Liberty decides, if we're successful and Liberty says, we're not going to comply and we're not going to treat gay people um, equally, then they won't get to participate in those loan programs and students will not get access to the loans and they'll have to go to a different school. So that is true. But the, but the burden on that, that, you know, they're, they're trying to make us, I guess, look like the bad guy for that. But really, it's their decision. You know, they can decide to do the right thing or not, the school itself. And, you know, hopefully a lot of them will. And I think most of them will because they're going to want the money. Um, Yeah. But, you know, there could be a situation where some students will not be able to go to Cedarville University, for example. If Cedarville 
says they don't want to change, then those students won't get access to government money. And there are already schools like that because um, if you take government money, you also have to comply with uh, sexual assault rules. You have to apply with sports equity rules. It's not just gay stuff. It's also a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, so school, some schools choose that. Now, you could also think of the same situation, yeah. though, if it was like black students not being allowed to go to, stu- to these schools like Bob Jones University in the 1980s. <laughs> um, you know, and you could also kind of put the blame on black students. Why, why would you want to go to an all white school? You know, you're making it harder for the white kids to afford it by demanding civil rights protections. And it's really putting the burden on the wrong person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's, you can definitely see the way schools would respond to that. I think fairly quickly in the ones that didn't, it was like, I mean, you know, you obviously a personal stake in this. I want to get into it a little bit later, uh, but all of the plaintiffs in the case that uh, have a personal stake in this and they, they all went to these schools thinking that they thinking that they wanted to without understanding the impact it was going to have on their life for years to come. And it in some way is saying also that if you really desperately want to go to a Christian school, there are plenty that will still take your money. Um, and it, it just, it hopefully will. And I'm, I believe this is probably the perspective you're coming from, given the, the way I'm understanding what you're saying is that it'll protect a lot of people who might think that that's what they want based on the upbringing they had without understanding or realizing that it's going to be a very damaging choice in the long run. Yeah. But so this, this will though, like make it, I, I, you could be, uh, you know, I'm trying to think there was a several like little bitty Christian schools around us that had small student bodies and stuff like that. But this would kind of effectively make it impossible to be a Liberty that has, you know, 10,000 people on campus. Cause I, that's what I was curious about. I just Googled the, number of or the amount of federal loans that are or student loans that are federally backed and it's 92 (laughs) percent so i mean you're you're not going to have a 10,000 person campus with no access to federal student loans unless you're byu like byu (laughs) mormons are good at this sort of thing they have so much money that they i mean they don't need the government's money but yeah let you know to be fair or maybe another way of looking at it, Casey, is Liberty ballooned off of the back of government money. Liberty did not used to have 100,000 students with 10,000 on its campus. You know, you know, Liberty started as a small institution, and then they chose to take government money, and they went big. And now they have put themselves in that situation. So again, it's like, all right, Liberty, you don't want to do this. Well, you, you know, you kind of already made your bed by taking government funding. You already have to comply with so many different legal restrictions. And yeah, you're going to try to religious liberty your way out of as many as you can. But at a certain point, when you're hurting people, the government's going to come down and say, you can't do that anymore with our money. And you're going to have to change. And Liberty has become the Goldman Sachs of Christian colleges. They're too big to fail. (laughs) (laughs) We have to prop them up. Yeah. And I do think that you are, uh, you know, your points are valid, but you are kind of selling short the stalwart leadership of Jerry Falwell Jr. (laughs) Fair is fair. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm glad he has one defender in this audience. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that guy. I have had dreams about Jerry Falwell just because he's like always in the news about doing something stupid and horrible. <laughs> Yeah, imagine having to apply for jobs or uh, get a job with that school on your uh, resume. Yeah, no, that's a common thing we hear from a lot of folks that, you know, it's like, wow, when people are full of hypocrisy like Jerry Falwell or they're out doing really mean things to people that their school gets a bad rap and they kind of become ashamed of that. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people, I want to get into some of the, uh, some of how, something like this class action lawsuit started because obviously it just starts with an idea. It starts with recognizing the issue. I feel like most people are really familiar with the concept of a class action lawsuit and the way that they get like, they could, they get a letter in the mail. that says they can get a check for like $3 and 47 cents. If they bought a crock pot in 1984, right. That <laughs> might have caught fire if you left it on for 72 hours straight or something ridiculous. But like, <laughs> you are a family member has mesothelioma. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I guess I don't feel like I, I mean, that's my understanding of class action lawsuits. Everyone gets it, but they're kind of vague. So like when you have this idea and you have this big thing that you want to tackle, like what, what does that look like? How does, how does starting a class action lawsuit like this work? Yeah. Good question, Sam. So yeah, you're totally right. It's usually about the crock pot. I mean, that, that's what people are most familiar with. But it's also frequently used in civil rights cases. And so the court offers class action as it's essentially an efficient way to bring a whole bunch of legal claims. So imagine, let's say that we have 10,000 students who would like to file a lawsuit against the Department of Education because they are queer and they got harmed at a Christian college. Well, they could all file 10,000 lawsuits all over the country, and then that would be a lot of work for the judges and for the juries and the courts. So um, what the legal system in the U.S. allows is, well, let's just consolidate it all, and you can have what are called representative plaintiffs. And so for our case, we have 33 representative plaintiffs, and they stand in the shoes of all the queer and trans and non-binary students at religious colleges who are being harmed. And so if they're successful, then everyone wins. And um, that's kind of the doctrine of a class action is, um, you know, you can, it, it's more, it's like judicial economy is kind of what's driving it there. Let me, let me put it in better terms for you. Uh, if you remember Dragon Ball Z, uh, class action lawsuit is the spirit bomb of the legal world. <laughs> okay. I wasn't a Dragon Ball Z guy, but <laughs> I'm going to take your word gonna... for it. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I felt so good about that reference and it missed both of you. <laughs> are, you a, are you a gamer? I think I can tell by your chair and your. Uh, my wife is. <laughs> my wife's That's a, a gaming gamer. chair. Okay. Okay. <laughs> performance based (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're right in a way does that mean the when when you have this idea for the class action lawsuit so maybe uh you know reap has this idea that says we should we should do this this is a big problem does it start with 
um, going to the court and then getting a bunch of people to sign on to it? Or does it start with collecting? Do you have to get signatures and get support before you even bring it to a court? Yeah. So I've been a lawyer for a little over a decade. And over the last 10 years, I've represented a lot of queer and trans students in one-on-one cases. So one kid gets expelled in Oklahoma and somehow they find me because I've done one of these cases before and then I represent them there. And then another kid gets expelled from Nebraska. Um, So those are one-on-one plaintiff cases. Well, what I noticed is over time, um, those one-on-one scenarios are actually becoming more frequent, not less frequent, even though civil rights has ex- have expanded greatly over the last five or 10 years, just like at this lightning speed for LGBTQ people, the campuses we're talking about, it's basically like nothing has changed since 1950, you know? Um, so the, these kids are like going to high school often in public schools where like half the kids are gay now and then their parents ship them off to Liberty and then, whoa, they have to go back in the closet and they're not so, they're not so keen on doing it anymore. And now when they come out at a place like Liberty university and they get sent to the Dean of women or the Dean of men or council, they're like, you know, screw this. I don't want to do that. And then they reach out to people like me. And so I've seen it's like getting more and more of a problem. So that's why I decided instead of doing all these one-on-one legal battles, this, this thing really needs to be attacked systemically because it's a systemic issue. Um, but I wanted to make sure. And so I traveled around the country, like I mentioned, and I met with dozens of queer and trans students all over the country, all sorts of different colleges. And then we also, also commissioned a study. Um, And so we had a study of 3,000 Christian college kids from 100 and something different institutions were represented in the sample. And the study revealed that 12% of them identified as LGBTQ and 20-something percent identified as LGBTQ or having some kind of interest or attraction or leaning towards the same sex. So that told us That it's not just one or two kids. We're talking about tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of kids. When you think of how many students are enrolled at schools, you know, if you just think of Liberty, there's 100,000 right there. BYU, another 100,000 right there. Then you add up the other 200 small and mid-sized ones. You're talking about, you know, over a million students at these schools. Is uh, Um, like with the individual cases, I mean, do these kids have a good track record of being able to come back at the institution or is it really dependent on the state? Yeah, it. Um, so I can't talk about any specific cases because of confidentiality and attorney-client sure. privilege. But what I can tell you, I can tell you a few things. It's a lot harder for these kids to get protections when they're going to a school in the South. Um, because in the South, there is still a culture that, often outside of urban areas like Nashville or Dallas, there's often still a culture that's quite hot, a secular culture that's quite hostile to the queer kids. So if you're in like rural Arkansas and you're a Christian college and you just, you know, flat out expel a trans kid just because they're trans, you know, your neighbors in Arkansas might be like totally fine with that. Um, But if you do that in Seattle, oh, your neighbors are not fine with that. The employers who are hiring your 
graduates at Microsoft and Starbucks and um, Amazon, they are not going to be happy with that. So kids have more power in urban and coastal environments where the community and the employers are progressive enough that the schools do not want to be embarrassed or shamed by what they have done. So what does that mean? Are they being nicer? No, not really. But they're being quiet about it. And when it happens, sometimes they're willing to settle under the table to avoid bad publicity. And But what ultimately what that means is that a lot of stories don't get told because they are shielded by non-disclosure agreements. Um, so I would say that, you know, that, that tells you a few things about like whether the kids can get justice or not and what the justice looks like right now. That's really interesting. And we know none of those schools is Liberty university because they are immune to the feeling of shame at this point. So it can't be shame that's keeping them from doing anything. Uh, yeah, it, it... so when, when you're building this, uh, what's the what's the process by which you you pick plaintiffs? Were these people you knew and had experience with? How how did how does that process work? And then what is the role of a plaintiff in this in the in the situation here? So I started with Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, starting on social, because what you what I'd do is I'd read about it in the news. So and so expelled. So-and-so denied admission. And then I'd find them and I'd say, hey, I read about you. I'm putting together this thing. Are you interested in this thing? And then they would say almost always, yes. And then I would say, do you have any friends who've gone through this? And then they would usually say, yes. And they would introduce me to their friends. Um, so, you know, Luke, you mentioned Luke Wilson, who I think has been on here. Yep. Like he knows every queer person in the history of Liberty University ever. <laughs> so he does. And he also knows a lot of people from other conservative colleges. So he connected me with quite a few people, but and folks like him. And then I also just get connect I just get contacted by people because I've done enough of these one-on-one -on -one individual cases that have gone into the news that people do reach out. Um, and then when we started REAP, um, we launched the organization and we filed the lawsuit. Since then, probably another hundred students have come to us out of the woodwork saying, me too, this happened to me too. And so now it's just kind of spreading like wildfire. But it, it starts with that initial handful that I kind of tracked down through social media and that agreed to be it's, you know, kind of started with five and then it became 10. And then I was like, oh, maybe let's get, you know, 20 and then it was 40. And then, you know, so it's it's really growing. Wow. So is there not like is there not a limit to the amount of plaintiffs you can have? Is that just like at your discretion? You just keep going until they get tired and you win. <laughs> <laughs> So there's not necessarily a strict limit, but the idea behind a class action is that, you know, you don't have everyone who could be a plaintiff as a plaintiff. Um, and so you, ac you asked me earlier, like, how do I decide who should be plaintiff? And so I should tell you that not everyone that I spoke with or interviewed 
did I ask to be a plaintiff? And that's because to be a plaintiff, you need to have a few things. Not only do you need to be part of the LGBT community and go to one of these schools, but you also need to be healthy enough to go through something like this. And what I mean by that is a lot of like 19-year-olds who are closeted and queer at a tiny school, like their mental health is not the best, right? And putting them through the ringer and the spotlight is not a good idea. So I wanted to vet them and make sure that I felt like they are you know, mentally stable. They have a friend group who knows that they're out and will support them, that they have family members that will be there, making sure that they are grounded enough that this isn't going to ruin their life, basically. So did some of that. And then also want to make sure, you know, on the other hand, that everyone's telling the truth and not making shit up to, you know, go on some crusade. So that was part of why I met with people face to face, even during a pandemic with social distance, um, (laughs) to make sure they're real and that their stories are legit. Well, it's a long vetting process when you start with MySpace surveys. (laughs) (laughs) That's so like for someone that, that, uh, that gets on board with this, that gets selected as a plaintiff, like what is their role going forward? Are they going to be a part of the, the, the legal action that happens? I mean, do they have to be present when you guys are, are in court and stuff like that? Or is it more of a available for questions and testimony and all that kind of stuff at any given time? So they all have to be willing to share their story on which they've done And they've become ambassadors for the case and for REAP itself. Um, They are part of the documentary, um, which will be covering, you know, some of them specifically more in depth, but all of them to a certain extent through the case. In terms of the mechanics of a lawsuit, it's a little different now because of COVID. Um, The courts will probably start opening back up in person here pretty soon. But there's a giant backlog in the legal system because of COVID. So things move really slowly. Um, And nowadays, and especially post-pandemic, I think that when we have like big hearings or depositions, I think everyone's probably still going to just do them virtually now because it's cheaper not to have to fly everyone somewhere and put them up in a hotel and just for an hour-long hearing with a judge or for, you know, a half day deposition. But um, yeah, some of them will be providing testimony in hearings. And if we go to trial at a trial, and there'll be a trial in front of a jury, um, they could all be deposed. I don't think the government or the interveners are going to want to depose everybody, but they all could be and some of them will be deposed. Um, So they, they, they are putting themselves out there and they know that they're taking on a risk of losing some of their privacy. So Sorry. is there like a, uh, I imagine with, with cases like class action cases like this, especially if it's high profile and on such a tense issue to begin with, like there's gotta be some active like PR discussion going on with plaintiffs, right? Like what, what happens when you get a, 
like let's say you got a person, there's media attention, they're kind of a Sarah Palin type character and they go rogue and they start start wandering off script. You know, like what's what how do you handle that? Is that uh is that common or is that just like that's why you have such an ex- an extensive vetting process before you get into it? You got to pick the right person for it. It's a little bit of that, but there's also, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so we were really intentional early on in arranging for media training. Um, There's an organization called GLAAD, which does a lot of work in the LGBT media and entertainment industry space. Um, And they have uh, someone that offered to train all of our plaintiffs on media. So they've all been through a media training. Um, and then we have a publicist who helps uh, with interviews and making sure we're picking the right plaintiffs to speak to the right media outlets. Uh, so we have, a, we have a publicist working with us. And then we have a social media team. And our social media team is in charge of both doing our social media for REAP, um, which you can find us on Instagram and Facebook, by the way, Um, but they also are kind of, you know, just checking in on what the plaintiffs are posting on their own social accounts to make sure that, um, messaging is aligned and so far so good. Uh, the kids are, you know, they're smart, they're smart kids. They're, um, they know what they're doing and they've gone through the training and they're doing a really good job. Um, and in, you know, it's reaching a a wider audience through their, their social networks. Yes. There was recently a, I don't know if I have the language right, but uh, the lawsuit had been, the class action lawsuit's been challenged by a group called the the Alliance Defending Freedom. That, I don't know what it looks like to like challenge a lawsuit, like a class action lawsuit or what that, what they're even going for. Uh, is that like a, a, something that you now have to deal with? What does that even look like when a, an, another group comes out and challenges of class action lawsuit and what are they doing sam you've been paying attention and you've done your homework very good <laughs> so alliance somebody has to casey just sits there and makes jokes like a <laughs> ding dong <laughs> plays video games with his wife all day huh <laughs> so yes we have had so okay so right now the lawsuit is structured as you have plaintiffs on one side and you have defendants on the other side so Our kids, our students are the plaintiffs, and the defendants are the Department of Education. Um, So where are these other people coming from? Well, the colleges, the Christian colleges who are doing the discriminating, we didn't sue them because, like I said earlier, we're not forcing them to change their policy. We're saying, you can make a decision. You can keep your policies or not. We're targeting the funding stream and non-discrimination law. So we don't have to name any of the colleges because the relief we're asking for is just against the government. But the colleges are thinking to themselves, well, we don't ever want to be put in that situation where we have to decide between money and our convictions. Um, And so we want to intervene. And they're also saying that they don't believe that President Biden is going to defend the religious exemption and their interests. So the law offers a procedure where you can file a motion and say, I would like to intervene in this case because I think my rights are at stake and no one in this lawsuit is looking out for them. So we're coming in. 
So Alliance Defending Freedom did that, <clears throat> and they are a very right-wing organization that's been uh, the Southern Law Poverty Law Center um, has designated them as a hate group. Um, they put out all sorts of very extreme materials, but they have lots of money and lots of very smart lawyers. I can say that in part because I, well, I guess I'm... Uh, outing myself a little bit here, but uh, I was at Alliance Defending Freedom back in my conservative self-hating days when I was a law student. They have a fellowship called the Blackstone Legal Fellowship, and I was one of those legal fellows. And so I spent time in the belly of the beast, and I know their, their operation, and they are not to be treated lightly. So they have come in. And then uh, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities just called me yesterday, and they um, intervened yesterday, last night. They filed motion to intervene on behalf of 180 Christian colleges. So there are now multiple interveners, all raising First Amendment arguments. <clears throat> Ooh, wow, sounds like you got. That sounds like it's going to be this. I can't. You mentioned this is going to be a long. Uh, it's a long road, but now I'm kind of getting an idea of yeah what makes it so long. <laughs> yeah, so we're it's like gonna... if you hit speed bumps going fast enough, you barely feel them, though, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're um, we're gonna, you know, we're in communication with a broader coalition beyond Reap, and you know, our hope is to, you know, they're bringing muscle. We're gonna bring more muscle too. So oh, obviously uh, I have, I don't know anything about the law or how that all functions, but it sounds like, you know, the, 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 the strategic approach you guys are taking is, is significant because when you're going after the department of education and funding schools that perform certain th actions against a group of people versus the schools themselves, that certainly gives you guys a lot more leverage than trying to just go after schools and make them change policy, things like that. Now, even though I've tried to do my homework, there are certain things that I haven't really done a great job at, you know, paying attention to, but uh, outside of like a, a general, uh, just generality being whatever, in a general sense. But um, one of the things that it, it seems like I know there's been the, a lot of talk about making updates to the Equality Act, uh, and nothing's really happened with that yet. It's gone kind of seems like it's kind of just waiting to be heard. But then the other thing is that um, there was that Supreme Court ruling. Uh, I, I'm going to get the name wrong. I probably it's like Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. Is that right? Bostock. And that okay. So my understanding is that that's that's significant that Supreme court ruling is significant uh, in, in kind of paving the road for what you guys are doing. Is that something you could speak to the, are you sure you're not in law school right now? Yeah. <laughs> Citing Supreme court um, decisions and precedent. Yeah. So the Bostock decision uh, was extremely helpful for our case. Um, it really was a, a piece of the puzzle that we don't have to fight anymore. And Bostock said that Title VII, which prohibits sex discrimination in employment, uh, includes sexual orientation and gender identity as a matter of law, not subject to interpretation. And Title VII 
on employment is interpreted pretty much the same way by the courts, and they say this even, um, as Title IX, which is our case is based on Title IX, which also prohibits sex discrimination, but in education. And so those two statutes are interpreted the same. So pretty much the universal understanding is now that Bostock said sex includes sexual orientation and gender identity under Title VII in the employment context, they almost certainly would do the same thing for Title IX. And all the judges are going to do that. So that was really, really helpful. But the case doesn't say anything about religious exemptions. Yeah, you kind of just have to hope that they draw from the it being a closely related concept uh, and depending on who you're how that I don't I don't know how that works really on your end and trying to make that connection and make the case that it's the same or it should be the same uh, it seems reasonable to the people you're talking to right now but yep so on the equality act Innate. side they they people are saying well why do we need the equality act then um because the Supreme Court, haven't they already decided the issue? Um, and, you know, there's some merit to that to a certain extent. Um, but the Equality Act would cover a lot more ground than the Bostock decision um, would do. And it would cement protections that were beyond the whims of any particular court or administration. So, it's still a very important piece of legislation, um, really vital to try to get that passed, though in the current Senate, it's unlikely to overcome hurdles with the uh, Republicans because of the filibuster. Yeah. Now, like, obviously, as this goes on and it gets more public uh, awareness and stuff, especially from people on the opposing side, it's going to be painted as you know, uh, you're, you're forcing religions to, to violate their conscience and to change their doctrine and all of this stuff. And like, from, from like a practical standpoint for a school like Liberty, what, what would, what sort of changes would they have to make in, in your mind? If, if this, if this went through the way that you want to see it go through, like what sort of practical changes does that mean for them on the ground on a daily basis? Really good question. It wouldn't fundamentally alter the identity of Liberty University as a religious or Christian school, evangelical school. Um, The school could even continue to maintain beliefs about marriage and gender identity um, that they they currently espouse. It's not going to change their beliefs. They can still claim to believe what they want. But what it will change is it means... If a transgender student, a male, let's say a male transgender student um, enrolls at Liberty, that they can't be put in female housing. They should be put in male housing because they are transgender male. If they're, <clears throat> if straight people like yourselves are allowed to get married while they're students, then gay people should be allowed to get married too to their same-sex partner and not be expelled. Um, if we win, liberty can still prohibit premarital sex. Um, you know, I'm I'm sure you guys know that that is, you know, followed by all students very very carefully. But they, <laughs> well, at least two. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but they can still they can still regulate sexual conduct, but they just need to do it on an equal footing. So, like, if you guys were allowed to make out with your girlfriends, let's say, or let's not even say make out, but you're allowed. To- you weren't. We weren't. <laughs> Uh, if you were allowed to be in a room alone with your girl, no, couldn't do that either. Okay. Uh, what about holding her hand? It's like money in the quad. <laughs> yes. Could you, could you hold hands? I can't remember. Or you had to be oh. engaged or something, didn't you? <laughs> I don't remember. I don't know if you could. I feel like you could. You could sneak in a handhold or two probably before getting expelled. <laughs> Dude, and this is a broader conversation. I don't want to distract us right now. But I want to lobby for the rights of all students to dry hump in their vehicles <laughs> at Walmart. <laughs> that should not be exclusive to any one group. You know what I mean? I think we need to file a class action lawsuit against Walmart for all the times they called the cops on people who were doing that. I mean, it was the only 24-hour location. I mean, what were we supposed to do? Yeah, I know the legal system's backed up right now, but can you pencil us in underneath <laughs> I'm not sure if you're going to survive my vetting process, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) But so, okay, so like practically speaking, um, they have to drop the punishments for for that relate to gender identity, sexuality, stuff like that. Like identifying as a as a gay person can no longer be a, a punishable offense. Right. Exactly. They need to treat gay students according to the same rules that they treat straight students, um, cisgender students, and need to be treated um, in terms of gender identity. Trans students would need to be treated the same way as well. So, yeah, it's it's changing the rules to make sure that there's equality, but they can still maintain whatever belief systems um, that they want and it wouldn't change like what religious leaders could say. Um, it would not allow the conversion therapy program to go forward though either. They're going to have all these types of institutions will have, they'll have to build tw- almost twice as many dorms because you know, they don't often allow you to be in the same room alone as uh, the person you're so just to be safe, just to make sure everyone gets their own room. Everyone gets we don't room. want any funny business going on. Yeah, they might have an, an all gay dorm, and I have a feeling it's not going to be the nicest dorm they built. You, <laughs> you know, get in the old circle dorms. You know, it's kind of funny. You guys should be jealous because you know you had to room with dudes who you were not into, but kind of a dirty little secret is that the gays and lesbians at Liberty are really kind of happy with the sex separation because they they can covertly get away with a lot more than you guys could have. We've heard some yeah. tales. Yeah, I know. They've been, we've been hearing them more recently. It's been funny. It'd be like, that happened on my dorm while I was there? I missed a lot. <laughs> but granted, my roommates were identical, were basically adults. My roommates were identical twins that dressed the same every day. And to be honest, I'm not convinced that they weren't in a relationship. I'm, I'm just <laughs> Dude, you have no idea how strange these two were. <laughs> it's like people don't believe the stories that oh, Sam tells gosh. about it, but they are true. Oh, One would gosh. get up early. They didn't have the same classes every day. So like whoever got up first would lay out the outfit for the other. Oh my God. Yeah, it was 
That is it was bizarre. a rough year. <laughs> wow. He spent a lot of time in other people's rooms. Yeah, I, I was I was a hall wanderer till all hours of the night until I just had to go to sleep. Oh my god! All right, I Paul, I want to be uh, respectful of your time here, but I, if you have anything else, any like that you want to just mention, stuff that we didn't touch on that you feel is important to get across as you're trying to like you know build awareness for this. Um, just want to give you an opportunity to say anything else that you, that we might've missed here that you'd like to like to get out there. Sure. Well, if you want to learn more about us, you can visit our website, which is www.thereap.org. And you can learn a little bit more about the lawsuit. You can see um, who all the plaintiffs are. We've got photos up there of all of them and you click on the photo. It gives you a little bit mini background. You can learn about the documentary, our research and all of that. So, That's a good resource. And, you know, one thing we're really pushing right now is that if, you know, any of your listeners are queer or trans people who went to a religious college, um, whether it's Liberty or another one, we really want to hear from them because whether you're a current student or an alum, you can file a Title IX complaint with the Department of Education um, or you can share your story with us and we'd love to, to get that out there. So, any, you know, anyone who wants to do that, they can do that through our website. And um, we're, we're really trying to make a push for some Title IX complaints to keep the pressure on. Okay. Is there any way for other like listeners to help out? Do you have like a, a fund set up or anything like that that they can donate to? Yeah, we've got a donate button on our website. And uh, we're, uh, we're a fiscally sponsored project of the nonprofit Soul Force. And so any... Um, any donations that you make are tax deductible, and um, yeah, we would we're a grassroots organization at this point. So yeah, any kind of funding uh, would be greatly appreciated. And you know, getting the word out, to especially religious communities um, that are more progressive, um, that might be interested in helping us, um, that would be great. Awesome. We'll um, I mean, we'll link all that stuff. We'll tag the Instagram. We'll we'll. We're going to do what we can to get the word out there to the people who are listening here. Uh, I think what you're doing is amazing. I'm glad it's going after. I mean, just I, I've been learning a lot over the past, I mean, really even six months of just talking to different people about their experiences that uh, I never would have even, I could have, I, I maybe guessed or thought about, oh, that was probably tough. Uh, but, you know, really hearing from a lot of different people about what their experiences were directly with these religious institutions and the the, the type of harm that it, they've done to them, um, whether or not they went to a Christian college or not, but just the, that just the religious institutions in general. Um, it's been really eye opening. So uh, we're very happy to have you on and, and be able to get this uh, get, get the word out there a little bit more Yeah, for you guys. Well, thank you for elevating those voices and um, really happy you guys evolved on these issues because, uh, you know, not everyone does. So <laughs> two straight white guys yeah. on the right side. <laughs> Could you, I'm ready to pat me on the back. White guys. Yeah, right. It's hard to believe two straight white guys started another podcast, right? <laughs> but you're using the platform in a good way. So I really do appreciate that because, you know, not a lot of people know about this Christian college world or fundamentalist Christianity in general. So we need as many people talking about it as we can. So it's, it's real important. Absolutely. 
Well, it was great talking to you, Paul. It's nice to meet you. And for everybody listening, uh, thanks for being here. If you're enjoying the show, uh, leave a leave a review on iTunes, and we will talk to you next time.